through uh, Advent, watching and waiting. Hopefully my clicker, yes, I'm in control. I got it, Jane, thank you. And um, uh, we, uh, have, you, have you heard of the play by Samuel Beckett, Wait, Waiting for Godot? Uh, the younger ones probably won't, but, but there was a famous play in ni- first performed in 1953 called Waiting for Godot, and, and it was kind of a satire on the human condition. Um, it was by Samuel Beckett, and, and as he saw it in the play, uh, humanity is waiting for Godot, or God, to come and save them, but he never shows up. <laughs> They're waiting in vain, for although uh, they've been repeatedly told that that God is coming, he never has and he never will. Uh, The characters in the play are told uh, to wait for Godot, for he might come tomorrow, and so they continue to wait in their dreary and dull existence. Uh, There's only one prop on the stage. It's it's a dead tree. It's the dead tree of life, The, the implication being that that there is no God, there is no saviour, there is no hope. Uh, and this is the, the worldview of Samuel Beckett and his fellow existentialists, that, that life is absurd, that there's no ultimate meaning to existence. And so what we have to do is that we have to create our own meaning without these religious props called uh, God. Uh, and so this tradition of God coming to earth at uh, Christmas was, was very strong in the 1950s, but after the horrors of World War I and World War II, Samuel Beckett wanted to, uh, if you like, dismantle people's delusions about uh, a God of hope. Uh, people spend their whole times waiting for God to show up, but all their waiting is in vain. It's a cheery story, hey. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed the overwhelming tide in our culture of depression and despair. It's just overwhelming. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed the rise of doomsday cults and dystopian visions about the future, a world without hope. We pray doubly, triply for our young people down here because it's the air they breathe a life of despair and a life without hope. Well, you know what? That's exactly what the Israelites were feeling in Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, it's there in the opening verse of verse 27. Why? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right or my cause is disregarded by my God. He's abandoned us. He's forgotten us. Well, he mustn't even exist. That's how they're feeling in verse 27. And of course, the context for them is that the mighty army of the Babylonians have come in and they've destroyed and leveled the people of God and the city of God. It was in 597 BC. On March 16, they leveled Jerusalem and they carried the people of God into exile. And so they're feeling like they're completely abandoned. There is no hope. There is no point watching and waiting. So what does God say to a culture and a civilization that is drowning in despair? What does God say to a people who are without hope and without God in the world? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the problem of suffering, which is where the story starts. We're going to be looking at the promise of power and finally the practice of waiting. The problem of suffering leaves us, leaves us uh, wondering wondering and waiting, the problem of suffering. It leaves us wondering, what on earth is going on? Like in verse 27, 
It leaves us wandering around in in confusion, not knowing which way is up, not knowing where to go. And it leaves us waiting, waiting for some kind of solution, waiting for some kind of salvation. And, And that's exactly how the poet John Milton who was a famous English Puritan poet, was was feeling. And he describes this experience and the problem of suffering, this experience of of wondering and and wandering and waiting in a famous sonnet that he wrote uh, in the 17th century. Uh, John Milton, many of you will heard of, was a man of many talents. He wrote poetry, but he also distinguished himself in politics, education and theology. John Milton wrote a a volume of systematic theology in Latin. Uh, So he was a clever guy, but at the age of 44, an unknown disease completely blinded him. And so from the age of 44, complete darkness, he was completely blind. And and, and in his blindness, he wrote this sonnet, Sonnet 19. It's known as the sonnet on his blindness. And it goes like this. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labour, light denied? I fondly ask, but patience to prevent. That murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts who best. Bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state kingly, Thousands at his bidding speed and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. The first half of the sonnet unpack the problem that Milton is wrestling with. How is he supposed to serve God whilst he's blind? He, he remains eager or bent in line four to, to serve his maker. But now that his light is spent, line one, he's blind and, and the outside world is dark to him, line two, he feels completely useless. God gave him talent for service, line three, and it feels like death not to use his talent. His ability feels useless, line four, with with nothing to do. Will God one day chide or scold him for his failure, line six? How is that fair? How can God take his eyesight away and then still hold him accountable for normal work, line seven? Well, he starts to unpack some of the answer in the second half of the sonnet. And and he gives the answer in the form of patience personified because patience is the thing that God is trying to teach him and patience is what he needs to learn. And so patience personified speaks. He's He's saying that God doesn't need us to get his work done. Line 12, God is an almighty king who has thousands upon thousands to do his bidding. So what he requires from Milton is not busyness, but rest, to simply be waiting in God's presence, like an attendant in the throne room, trusting and ready and waiting on the king. And then the climactic final line 
says they also serve who only stand and wait. In other words, Christian service is not just acting or doing, it's also waiting on the Lord, Isaiah 40, verse 31. Milton wants to be running around feeling like he's useful, feeling like he's productive, and God wants him to be waiting on the Lord until God actually makes him useful. Verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, the postscript to John Milton's poem is that whilst he was blind, he composed his most fam- many of his most famous works and most powerful and long-lasting works in his blindness. Most famously, Paradise Lost. One of the greatest English pieces of literature ever to be written or any literature to be written. And, and what's it about? It's about God's plan of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Sounds like he learned his lesson. So the problem of suffering leaves us wondering and wandering and waiting, but that's the position we need to be in to receive the promise, God's promise of power. Verse 29, who does he give power to? He gives power to the faint, it says. He strengthens the powerless. Verse 31, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. The image of an eagle occurs 30 times in the Bible. Uh, The wingspan of an eagle can be over two metres wide. They they can weigh over five kilograms. And they can spot a rabbit, they can spot one of their prey from over three kilometres away. They can pinpoint their prey. They can fly at speeds of over 240 kilometres an hour. And, and when they're diving down, they can actually reach 320 kilometres an hour. And they can rise up to heights of over 6,000 metres in the sky. What an extraordinary image for God to use for his people who wait on the Lord, for those who wait on the Lord. What an extraordinary image for, and promise for God to make to his people who will wait on the Lord. Isn't that extraordinary? It's interesting, actually, because in the Bible, God actually describes himself as an eagle elsewhere. So in Exodus 19, verse 4, he says to his people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Uh, have you seen what an eagle can do up in the sky over the ocean when, when it's hungry and it wants something to eat? Can, have you seen what, what it's able to do? You've seen it darting down, haven't you? It gets its prey, lifts it up in its hands. Well, what, what God is saying, well, you saw me do that to the almighty Egyptians. That's what you saw me do with all their chariots, with all their horses. That's what you saw me do. You saw me bury Pharaoh and his army and his Egyptians down in the bottom of the sea and to raise you up on eagles' wings and to set you free. This is an image of God's might and power and speed with which he can rescue and deliver his people. 
But it's also an image of his protection for his people, his powerful protection. In Psalm 91, our first reading, he says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. So these are the images of God as an eagle. But isn't it interesting here that he says, we're the ones who will mount up on eagles' wings. In other words, all the power and all the protection that he has will be, will be given to us, to those who wait upon the Lord. I'm, I'm reminded of, of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. And in Isaiah, he's saying, you're, you're not a chicken. You're not a turkey. You're an eagle. You're to mount up on wings like eagles. And Paul says, God did not give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. That is who we are in Christ, in our new nature. The old is gone. The new is come. He gives us his divine power, the eagle. We become like eagles. But according to verse 31, this promise of power like an eagle only comes through the practice of waiting. Verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. There's only one type of person who renews their strength according to this verse. And and what type of person is that? What type of people are they? Those who wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord. So how important do you think it is for us to figure out what it means to wait for the Lord? If the only people who renew their strength and mount up on eagles' wings are those who wait for the Lord, then how important is it for us to figure out what that is? I'd say very important, wouldn't you? Three things. I think to wait for the Lord means to trust and obey. To trust and obey. There's this famous scene out of the movie Braveheart. Put up your hand. Have you seen Braveheart movie? Gee, not many of you. It's it's an absolute uh, classic movie with William Wallace, the hero of this um, ragtag band of Scottish soldiers who who are fighting for freedom. They've They've got no weapons. They've got no chariots, no horses, no uniforms, and no accoutrements of, uh, of warfare like their enemies have. But they do have one thing. They have a courageous, fearless, and innovative leader called William Wallace. And he's a leader who they absolutely trust. There's this one scene where he's led them to handcraft these homemade spears that they they need to lift at exactly the right time and they need to wait for his command. The timing is absolutely everything because if they, as the enemy charges down, if they lift their spears up, they're kind of dug into the ground. If they lift them up too early, then the enemy will see that it's a trap and they will stop coming. But if they do it too late, they'll be minced meat. They'll be sliced and diced by all these guys on horses. And so all these soldiers are thundering on horseback towards them and all these untrained Scotsmen have to watch and wait. And they're charging down and William Wallace shouts out, Hold! 
And they're charging down and they're getting closer and they're getting louder. And William Wallace shouts out, hold. And now it's just an absolute thunderstorm of noise. They're almost right there. And William Wallace shouts out, hold. And you're sitting there thinking, are these guys going to be able to hold their nerve when they've got so much on the line? Are they going to be able to trust their leader or are they going to trust themselves and their own instincts? Well, William Wallace finally gives the command and they raise their spears at exactly the right time and they win the battle. The plan works perfectly, but it all came down to one thing. Were they able to trust their leader? Were they able to trust their captain that he was wise enough, that he was strong enough, that he was powerful enough to lead and to look after them. You see, it takes an enormous amount of discipline and an enormous amount of trust to resist the temptation to run ahead in your own strength when you're under pressure, doesn't it? It it takes a huge amount of trust to wait for God, for his timing, for his wisdom and his plans. To wait on the Lord is to trust to trust in the Lord and in his power and strength, those who wait on the Lord. It also means to relax, to rest in him. How many of us here have got the Messiah complex? Do you know, do you know what that is? Or, or you know someone who's got the Messiah complex? It's in, the, it's in the Dictionary of Psychology. It's defined as the desire to redeem or save others or the world. This individual may harbour the delusion of being divine. It's a temptation for all of us. There's this one time Martin Luther, the great reformer, right, who wanted to save the world and made a good crack at it, actually. He was with his mate Philip Melanchthon and they were reformers together during the Protestant Reformation. But one time he just had to stop his mate Philip and said, let Philip cease to rule the world. That's the Messiah complex. You you, you can't relax because what God does is he doesn't know what he's doing and otherwise he'd be doing this and he'd be doing this and he's doing this and because he's not, then I need to do it instead. But to wait on the Lord is, is to rest in his power and his strength. King David, can you imagine how much of the weight of the world that he would have felt on his shoulders as the king in the most successful and biggest kingdom? Of Israel. Do you know what he says in Psalm 131 that King David, he says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not go after things too great or too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. The temptation is to be like the guys in verse 30, even youths. Uh, It's sort of talking about the ones that you'd pick for your Olympic team to represent your country. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But no, to wait on the Lord is to relax and to wait in his power and his strength. To trust and obey, to relax, and to wait on the Lord is to expect. It's to expect him to move in mighty and powerful ways. There's a reason God says that we're supposed to be like the eagle and not supposed to be like a chicken or a turkey. 
A chicken or a turkey, they've always got their face in the ground, their heads down and their face in the dirt and, and they can't see what God is up to. And that's what we can be like. All, all we see is our painful situation or our difficult circumstances. How many of us suffer from low expectations? How many of us suffer from having low expectations of God? And so we look at the fact that an entire generation of 15 to 35-year-olds are basically missing from St. Philip's, completely gone, an entire generation. And we think, well, I guess that's just the way it is. I guess that's just the way it is. And we look at the fact that our local council, our local community struggles to get anything done, productive, and we just think, well, I guess that's just the way it is. We look at the fact that the schools and the media are spouting absolute nonsense and poison to our kids about what it means to be human. And we think, well, I guess that's just the way it is. <laughs> guess that's just the way it is. Can, can you imagine if William Wilberforce in the 18th century or, or John Newton... Where, where the slave trade was just, just a given. It, it was just normal, it was given, it was an accept. Can you imagine if they looked upon the evils in their society, William Wilberforce or John Newton, and just went, well, I, I guess that's just the way it is. I guess evils won the day. Time to hang up our boots and just gather in our holy huddle. No, that, that wasn't their attitude. John, John Newton once wrote this. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. And look what God did through them. Indeed, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. There's a key word in verse 31. This word renew uh, in the Hebrew can also be translated replace or exchange. Those who wait on the Lord will exchange their strength. I love what one commentator says. He says, those who give up their own frantic efforts to save themselves and turn expectantly to God will be able to replace or exchange their worn out strength for his strength, those who wait on the Lord will exchange their strength. It's kind of like the story of the king and the beggar. Uh, the king one day went to the streets to uh, greet his subjects and, and a beggar came up to him and held out his bowl to the king, confident that the king would give him something. But, but instead the king said, I want you to give me something. And he's like, <laughs> What are you kidding? I've got nothing. You're the king. You've got everything. I mean, he was thinking this. And so he's like a bit resentful. He just gets out three little grains of rice and out of his bowl and he just gives them to the king and then the king walks off. Well, at the end of the day, the king, uh, sorry, the beggar, uh, he empties his, his bowl out to see his findings for the day and to his astonishment, he finds three grains of pure, solid gold. And he says, I wish I'd given him everything. 
Brothers and sisters, to the degree that you are able to give God your plans, to the degree that you are able to give God your money, to the degree that you give God your kids, to the degree that you give God your community and your country, to the degree that you give God your heart, guess what he'll give you? His strength. Those who wait on the Lord will exchange their strength. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he made himself nothing, being born as a baby and found in a manger. Do you not know, have you not heard, that he walked the earth and as he walked he gave strength to the weary and he gave power to the faint? Do you not know, have you not heard how he was arrested by soldiers and led like a lamb to the slaughter on Mount Calvary? Have you not heard how they mocked him They spat on him and they pulled at his beard. Have you not heard how they placed on this Lord and creator, the everlasting God, a crown of thorns, forced it on his head and they nailed his hands and his feet to a cross? Have you not heard how they laid his broken body in the tomb? Do you not know, have you not heard how three days later he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you not know, have you not heard How as his people were fearful and weak and waiting and wondering for 10 days that on the day of Pentecost, the Lord poured out his mighty Holy Spirit and they exchanged all of their sin and all of their fear with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, what does it say? They will rise up on eagles' wings. And as they waited on the Lord, he poured out his ascended glory and power on his people. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Let's take a moment to wait for the Lord in the quiet of our hearts.
to brothers and sisters in Christ, may the eyes of your hearts be opened to the immeasurably great power of God for all who believe. And that power is like the power that he used when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. It's the power that he poured out on Pentecost and the power that is available to all who wait for the Lord. May he bless you with eyes enlightened to that power. We're going to sing.